Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there nothing worth fighting for? mental health is is an issue that is completely I think mental health in general is an issue that is just um, you know it's completely misunderstood and I think the, the problem with the, the the male aspect is you know we're, we're, we're you know to use an archaic word like we're like meant to be warriors we're meant to be strong we're meant to be the alpha we're meant to be the provider do you know what I mean and we're like none of those things <laughs> let's be honest like we we are you know we're, we're just we're just not built for that anymore, really, because the world is a, a very different place than it was fucking 2,000 years ago. And um, so I, I think, like, you know, we have this real problem at the minute where we're entering into a society that is incredibly narcissistic and um, it's, it's moving at, like, a, a real fast rate. And I don't really think anybody has any kind of understanding because there's not really been time to do any research and the effect that that has on, on our mental health in, in any way, shape or form. And um, so I think that the best thing we can do is just is have that open conversation. I think things like Movember that bring, like, they force men out of their comfort zone into a place where they can feel like that group, you know, we, we feel stronger in a pack type thing. And that enables the conversation to enter into the pack so that everybody can kind of talk about it and no one's scared of being called out as being like, you know, whatever the fuck word you want to be called right now, you know. Um, I think that's the biggest problem is that we, we are too proud and too stubborn. And, um, and when actually like all of those things just show like we are very insecure, very delicate. We're moving into a place where social media, we, we have these avatars and we are, in a lot of ways, we're, we're more uh, concerned about how we're perceived on the internet than we are in real life. In fact, when you meet most people in real life, you realize that their, their online avatar is something very different from, from the reality. 
And um, I think that's a dangerous place to be, a really, really dangerous place to be. And I think it's um, a really scary future for our children. Like, I'm terribly worried for my child because she's going to grow up in this world where it, it's just, it's natural, you know? Like, she already knows how to open a fucking iPad. She's two years old. Like, you know, she knows how to find her favorite video on YouTube. It's blows my mind. I can't even use YouTube. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm like sat there searching for hours trying to find this shit and she's just found it. Like, but, but that's, that's just the way it goes. You know, I'm sure it's the same for our parents. You know, I'm, 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 no doubt. My dad's told me, you know, everything that I, I speak to my mum and my dad about now, like how scared I am for her, they're saying the exact same things, really. You know, technology was moving too fast. The world was in like war. Like, it's just, um, I think, yeah, I think now it's just about this, uh, I think there's never been a more important time to ask questions about how we are feeling. Truly, like, are you okay? You know, no one really asks that. They're, they're just like, what are you doing? You know, what are you wearing? <laughs> Where are you going? Who are you with? Like, that's what our record is about. It's about asking, like, are you okay? Like, honestly, are you, are you all right? And, and if you're not, like, do you want to just talk about it, you know? The best thing we can do now is just keep checking on people. That's why I'm talking about this, this pack mentality, like things like that, charities that are reaching out, like people that are using their, their like, you know, their fan base to talk about these issues. Like it's, it's incredibly important because it gives like um, a combined strength, you know, which I think we're too like, more often than not, we're just like shy away from. You know, we'll be like, yeah, I'm tough on the outside. I'm fine. I'm all right. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was a recording of Frank Carter, singer in The Rattlesnakes, speaking about the stigma around male mental health. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode 8 of our podcast, things worth fighting for. I hope wherever you're listening to this, whether you're painting the spare room, skiving off from a Zoom meeting, or braving public transport to get into work, you're doing okay and everyone around you is safe and healthy. The reason we made this podcast was because we were inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. 
I'm speaking to you today from where I live, in the very Dickensian setting of Clerkenwell in London, in the first week of October, and it's been pissing it down with rain for three days straight. I'm a property guardian, which means I get to live in empty buildings until the inevitable arrival of estate agents in their Range Rovers and Audi TTs, with our marching orders to hop on to the next vacated school building, Erie police station, or in our very fortunate case, a beautiful and lofty old Victorian tram shed. As it happens, that dreaded day came a couple of weeks ago, which means it's the end of one chapter, but the beginning of a new one. For the past three and a half years, this building has been both my home and Mystery Jet's HQ. We wrote and recorded the album here, submerged in its rabbit warren of a basement, filmed music videos in its various corners and rooms, and shared Christmas feasts amongst its ornate central atrium, wrapped up in woolen jumpers and gloves. I'm going to miss this place dearly, but most of all, I'm grateful for the many songs it's given us, which are featured throughout this podcast series. Speaking of which, the theme we're going to be exploring on today's episode is toxic masculinity and male mental health. Although the term toxic masculinity feels like it's only entered popular vernacular in relatively recent years, the etymology or origin of the expression can be traced back to a guy called Shepard Bliss. He was part of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 1980s, an assortment of American writers and academics interested in self-help and the work of the psychologist Carl Jung. Shepard Bliss used the expression toxic masculinity to describe a male archetype which he considered to be the opposite of an alternative deep masculinity. He defined the term as society's expectation that men be active, aggressive, tough, daring and dominant. In more recent times, someone hugely responsible for deconstructing and recontextualizing the notion of toxic masculinity for a new era has been the Turner Prize-winning artist Grayson Perry in his wonderful book, The Descent of Man. Drawing a parallel between male archetypes and feminism, Perry passionately argues that now is the time for men to stand up and fight for their rights too. The right to be vulnerable, the right to be weak, the right to be wrong, the right to be intuitive, the right to know, the right to be uncertain, the right to be flexible, and the right to not be ashamed of any of these. We need to rebrand vulnerability and emotion, Grayson writes. A vulnerable man is not some weird anomaly. He's open to being hurt, but also to love. Last year, the shaving company Gillette released an advert in which they rebranded their classic tagline, the best a man can get, to the best that men can be. The commercial showed long lines of hunky dads in plaid shirts stood over their sizzling Weber barbecues, chanting boys will be boys, as images of gross sexual harassment and playground bullying flashed across the screen, culminating in a montage of men stepping in to break up fights and calling their mates out on their predatory behaviour. Clocking up over 20 million views in a single week, the film prompted fiery debates on morning television shows over whether the commercial was a timely debunking of cliched macho stereotypes or endemic of a malevolent, politically motivated war on men. Whether or not the ad was indeed a massively ill-judged case of corporate virtue signalling, it was clearly commissioned in solidarity with the Me Too movement but the backlash which ensued illustrated just how conflicted and nuanced the conversation is around masculinity today. A cultural shift that I've personally noticed over the past five years has been of a growing acceptance that as men, we should be allowed to share our vulnerabilities, failures and doubts so as to spark a bigger conversation. 
I know that there are, of course, still lanes in society where being a leader, provider, status hunter, high-achieving, sexually promiscuous, dignified symbol of straight achievement are still regarded as ultimate virtues, but it's starting to feel like we're moving into a new space. And yet, we're all, at times, still guilty of bottling things up. Something which you hear a lot amongst men is, I don't need help, I can help myself. Where does that insistent voice come from? Perhaps we don't want to cause a fuss or to burden others with our problems. Maybe we don't want to appear weak, especially to women, but also to other men. We might be scared that no one will relate and that we might be stigmatised for reaching out. So many of us do what we've always done. We go to the pub or we stay in and drink at home. But the truth is, when suffering from a deep depression or anxiety or stress, it can take the world crumbling away around you to accept that the old tried and tested methods just aren't working. Poor mental health isn't like a blister or the flu. It doesn't just eventually go away of its own accord. It needs the right care and attention, and the symptoms aren't always immediately obvious to us. There are triggers that seem to me to be universal. A bad breakup, losing a loved one too soon. A trauma from childhood which perhaps never received the attention it needed at the time. Having your dreams bullied out of you at school because you looked different or had an unusual name or the wrong coloured hair. That sort of heavy life stuff can take many years to shake off. Sure, we each develop our own coping mechanisms for the trials which life throws at us and that's a testament to the power of human resilience. But what happens when we falter or too many of these instances of bad luck happen in quick succession? And what if we decide that our friends have enough on their plates without having to worry about our problems too? When I was getting over a messy breakup in my early 20s, there was still a stigma around seeking help. In regards to psychotherapy, the cliché that would come to mind would be that of a character from Sex and the City, spending their lunch break paying $90 an hour to lie on a plush chaise longue, boring an uptown shrink about all their neurotic first world problems of macrobiotic diets, pay rises and divorce settlements until it was time to go back to their high salary job on Madison Avenue. Thankfully, the myth that therapy exists exclusively for the benefit of the ultra-privileged and the elite has been eroded away in subsequent years, and social media initiatives like World Mental Health Day and Anti-Bullying Week have helped normalise conversations around reaching out for counselling. But in a country like Britain, where mental health trusts have seen their budgets stripped across 10 years of austerity measures, that help isn't always the easiest to find. Anyone who's looked into government-funded counselling from their GP will know that even acquiring a referral can take as long as three months, sometimes with it taking another number of weeks or months before an appointment letter lands on your doormat. For someone already at their wit's end, three months is an unimaginably long period of time and may feel like too little too late. We've already explored some of these themes earlier in the series when I spoke to my friend, the ex-homeless artist David Tovey, and he vividly described his mental state to me the night he tried to take his own life for the first time. A common misconception around suicide is that it's not likely to be something that we'll personally have to come into contact with in our own lives. And I pray for you that that will be the case. But contrary to popular belief, I don't think there's such a thing as the suicidal type. Circumstances can drastically change at any given time, and the events of this year have shown us all that. On average, a man in the UK will take his own life every two hours. Men are three times as likely as women to commit suicide, and it's the biggest killer of men under the age of 50. 
As it happens, myself and the band lost a close family friend to suicide over this past summer. My mate Barry was a much-loved figure on our spiritual home of Eelpie Island. He'd blare our music out from the slipway where he worked at all hours, and he'd often help us slog our equipment across the footbridge to the tour bus before a festival or a run of shows. He was someone who always went out of his way to create time for others, and he'd make small, kind gestures just for the satisfaction of knowing it would make someone's day that little bit better. Like many people, Barry was hit hard by the disruption of the lockdown, and he hated being away from the community of boat folk and like-minded souls on the island. Although he was isolating with family, it turned out that he was spending more and more time in bed, and over the course of the summer months became deeply depressed to the point of desperation. Barry wasn't just someone who loved company, he needed friends around him. Some he would share his ideas and inventions with, others he'd care for or help with shopping and chores. I think it gave him a deep sense of purpose, which perhaps his life previously had been missing. But Barry never wanted to burden other people with his troubles, perhaps out of fear that he'd be a hindrance. Perhaps he believed his grievances were worth less than other people's, and that maybe that meant he was worth less too. If only he knew that that weren't the case, perhaps we would have seen the signs sooner and had time to help him explore other options. We miss you, Barry. Suicide leaves a devastating trail of destruction on family, friends and a whole community of people left behind, which is another reason why it's so important to keep talking and checking in on each other. You never know who might need a friendly ear, especially in these weird and uncertain times. Since 1953, one of the organisations helping people suffering with the effects of trauma and suicidal thoughts in the UK is the Samaritans. Founded by Chad Vara, a vicar and cartoonist, the Reverend's vision was for a free helpline to answer distressed calls seven days a week, 24 hours a day. An incredible 65 years later, the Samaritans is still going strong, with over 20,000 volunteers manning the phones in 201 branches across the UK and the Republic of Ireland. One of the amazing volunteers giving their time to answer calls night and day is my dear uncle Hugh. I decided to give Hugh a call to find out a little more about the organisation, and he kindly talked with me about what made him personally feel like he could be of help. I, um, I was doing a social work degree in 1974 on the Isle of Wight. And whilst I was working with people who were very vulnerable, elderly, I trained as a homeopath. And in about five years after, I then trained as a craniosacral therapist. And I used those two therapies combined. And um, I, I also volunteered as a Samaritan. And I've always been convinced by the sheer impact of engaged listening. And then a couple of people I was really close to, close friends, took their own life, unfortunately. And um, I realised that actually what I do in my work life is listen to people. But as a volunteer for Samaritans, and I feel privileged to be a part of it and to be able to hear people's stories and to be able to support them. And I think we're one of the few organisations who have very high standards of care, compassion, confidentiality, anonymity, and a non-judgmental approach. And I think that's why so many people use us, you know, because when they feel totally alone, they realize at the end of this phone is someone who is there for them 100%. And sometimes we don't speak 
We're here to listen, above all, not to advise. We're here really to be alongside people in their suffering. You know, one in four people on the planet suffers from depression or mental health problems. So, you know, we're not, none of us are strangers to anxiety and depression, really. But the people we speak to are highly vulnerable. They may have a history of trauma, abuse. They may be elderly and frail. They may be people who self-harm, who are very um, you know, at risk of taking their own lives. I'd say very clearly, you know, we're not here to change anyone's mind. You know, what we're here to do is meet people where they are. And if someone genuinely feels they want to end their life, we're not here to impose our agenda. And, you know, I would say, for the most part, the people who phone us, 99% will feel better from engaging with someone who respects everything they say and is non-judgmental. And, and, you know, whatever they decide, we will respect it. Because what they have to share may be really, really personal. They may have something that happened in their life they feel terrible guilt about. They may feel that their suicidal thoughts are too, too hard for people who care about them to hear, particularly close family members. I'm speaking as a, a man of a certain age, semi-retired person in my late 60s, and my experience, you know, the way young boys and young men and even, you know, older men are conditioned, they can talk about sport, the cows come home, but, you know, to talk about meaningful things that touch the very fabric, the souls of our nature, I think, you know, young men and men in general find it very difficult to unburden themselves. So therefore, they store up, they bottle up these feelings. And although they're less likely to self-harm than young women, those feelings lie repressed. And, you know, then the danger arises because they don't, they're not experienced. They don't have the emotional intelligence, unfortunately, because of their upbringing. They bottle these feelings up and they do drastic things. And I think that aspect hopefully will change with better models about our gender. So, I, you know, I would say as a human being, as a Samaritan, is that what we need to do as men is to be open, honest and trusting with our feelings, whatever they may be, and know that we can find a safe place where these feelings can be shared, where men and women equally can share. And Samaritans, in my experience, definitely exemplifies that fact. One of the ways we've endeavoured to use our voice as artists to engage in conversations surrounding male mental health is through our songwriting. On Friday the 11th of May 2018, I, like many people, was incredibly saddened to learn of the death of Scott Hutchinson, the singer with Scottish indie band Frightened Rabbit. Scott had taken his own life. Those familiar with Frightened Rabbit's music will know that the subject of Scott's fragile mental state played something of a theme in many of his lyrics. Although I never met Scott in person, we had exchanged messages over Twitter, and it meant a great deal to me that he enjoyed my music, as I hugely admired his. His lyrics communicated to me a sense of deep, lived experience and honesty. He had a rare talent to be able to write about the rawness of heartbreak in a way that wasn't simply confessional, but allowed the listener to feel that their own darkness was also being expressed. In the days following Scott's death, I listened to Frightened Rabbit's music on endless repeat, in efforts to absorb something of his spirit into a song of my own. I wanted to write a kind of musical flair to send up into the sky to him, but also to anyone feeling close to the edge, needing to feel seen or heard. The music that came to me would eventually become a song called Watching Yourself Slowly Disappear, 
and you'll get a chance to hear it in its entirety at the end of this podcast episode. Frank Carter is the lead singer and songwriter of the British band Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes. They're a much-loved group who are renowned for their rapturous live shows, and many of which they often call for female and non-binary-only mosh pits to encourage equality and empowerment with their fans. Frank's someone who's always been beautifully transparent about where his head's at, and partnered with Calm last year on an initiative called A Better Place For You And Me to provide a safe forum for people to discuss ways of overcoming anxiety. When the Rattlesnakes were forced to pull out of a support slot on an arena tour due to his health struggles the previous year, Frank wrote on the band's Facebook page, If you're struggling with the weight of the world around you, please talk to someone. Embarrassment breeds shame. Shame breeds loneliness, and loneliness will kill you if you let it. I think it's so brilliant that an artist like Frank is using his platform to demystify mental health struggles, not only, but especially amongst men. And I want to thank him for this week's powerful opening thought. Someone else using their voice to blow open the conversation around male vulnerability and the British stiff upper lip is the person I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For is a songwriter, an advocate for mental health, and perhaps best known as the frontman of a guitar band, which I admire deeply, and I know lots of you listening do too. Joe Talbot from Idols. Idols formed in Bristol in 2009, alongside bassist Adam Devonshire, drummer John Beavis, and guitarists Lee Kiernan and Bowen. Joe's band brought an aggression and intensity with their music and live shows not heard in the British mainstream for years. And with it, a political edge not commonly found today outside the likes of grime. Their first album, Brutalism, was released to critical acclaim in 2017, as was their follow-up, Joy as an Act of Resistance, in 2018, landing a place in countless Albums of the Year lists on both sides of the Atlantic. Ultra Mono, their third album, came out last week and shot straight to the top spot in the British album charts, where it still sits as I'm speaking to you, reportedly outselling all the records in the top five combined. I first met Joe back in June 2017, when Idols and Mystery Jets both opened for our mutual friends the Maccabees at their three hugely emotional farewell shows at London's Alexandra Palace. After their meteoric rise, Idols returned to Ali Pali just over two years later, as victorious headliners themselves. I met with Joe again way back in January of this year, in a slightly sketchy neighbourhood of his hometown of Bristol, a few months before everything changed and the world went into lockdown. So we had the great privilege of talking face to face, unlike some of the other episodes in this series, which were recorded online or over the phone. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the one and only Joe Talbot, and I'll meet you on the other side. We first met at the Maccabees farewell shows at Ali Pali back in 2017. Yes, yeah, we did. I was in a really, really dark place then. <laughs> I don't, I like, we obviously we spoke, but I was like really not well. Right. So, yeah, but what a, what a, an amazing. Well, you're looking very show. well today. So. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was a wonderful time that I the, think the shows. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard. A uh, couple of your tracks, I think, on Six Music. I think it was on Steve Lamac's show, but 
what everyone was saying is just that you've got to see the live show and that was the first time I saw you play and it really was just incredible mm. it was a weird one for us because it was obviously still like Alexandra Palace for anyone who hasn't been if it's in the summer the first bands are on in daylight because yeah. it's still light and there's loads of windows at the top so it was really weird for us like playing in daylight indoors to Maccabees and Mystery Jets fans <laughs> were like who are these clowns? It's strange because it, it does feel like this kind of cavernous yeah. like market hall or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it's strange. But yeah, as soon as the lights go down, it's great. There was something about that gig that felt almost like awake. I, I can just remember at the end of the Maccabees set, there, was, there were people who just did not want to leave. They were hanging on to the barrier. And I remember the people walking back down the hill to the tube singing, I think it was something like Happiness. And there was just such a such a magical spirit to that but then fast forward two years you guys played it yourselves i mean you know the torch was passed on that must have felt incredible yeah yeah it was it was bizarre so it, it was almost a bolshie move from our management it it, it took me by surprise when they're like we're gonna do it and it was like we're not gonna that isn't us now that's not the size of venues we play it was it was more of like this is the end of our first chapter, so we'll celebrate that with something special. How and, did it uh, feel? It was uh, daunting and really relieving. The last time we were there as, as was when we played reviewing the Maccabees and uh, my wife and I just lost our daughter in labour, so I was like cloudy to say the least. Mm. I shouldn't have really been back at work, but, you know, as you well know, like this job doesn't really stop no. unless as you well know you're sick but I I've, I think at the time I thought it was a good idea anyway the boy no one would have forced us to play if I was just like I can't do it but I think like there's a pressure to play and also I, I, di I didn't really want to stop working because I thought it might help me mm. and it's music you know it's catharsis mm. so. but, well I was, um, was going to mention that because obviously am I right in saying June is about yeah. that experience yeah. I mean that song is fucking powerful. Thank you. you know? And the, the, the fact that um, you turned something that so few people have had the experience of that, something so huge and heavy, mm. you, you used music as a medicine to heal yourself yeah. from that. Yeah, yeah, um, it really helped. After that period, um, I really got to great, I went to counselling and stuff. And counselling, I think, is, is advisable for everyone, not just for the people that are emotionally impaired yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah really got me to understand that i was the reason why i think i shouldn't have been going back to work so soon the job we're in doesn't help these situations it does normally <laughs> but i think i was separating my personal life and my work and as you well know for us to be good musicians we have to be good to ourselves that yeah. kind of catharsis and the expression of that is once you dislocate your personal from your creative then it's there's no lineage there anymore and it's a bit fruitless yeah. i'd say so yeah it was it, but going into it i'm really looking delving into what i had to do to recover which was listen to myself and love yeah. myself and all that jazz yeah. really helped because i mean i remember around that time there was a piece on you in one of the Sunday papers and you talked very vividly about that experience. I mean, yeah. I thought that was incredibly brave. I, I, I think, 
as artists, in a way, we have to work out our relationship with the media and how much we are prepared to reveal about our lives. And I, that, to me, felt like incredibly brave. Mm. Um, Thank you. Do you ever feel like you're too brave? I think I'm too uh, naive, I think is the word. I think it was to the detriment of my wife as well, because obviously she lost her daughter. And not only did she lose her daughter, but she went through a very violent emergency C-section, which is... Well, I mean, we went through it with our second child as well, okay. uh, an emergency C-section. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, there's, you can have a planned C-section where you book it in like a any other date or you you have to get the baby out quick mm -hmm. and all the signs uh, for the second labor were very similar to the first it was it was like same the same the same room where we had the first uh, okay. where we lost our first daughter same place a lot of the same staff it was like and everything was almost like play for play so i was like losing my mind but anyway the good news is we had a daughter alive the second time around you know for a mother who goes through that then has to heal physically as well yeah. as mentally with women who have a successful pregnancy without a c-section they lose the weight baby weight quite quickly because breastfeeding you use up loads of calories and all the hormone balances are there where your body's like right we've had the baby let's heal quick and and you lose the weight and you kind of you don't look pregnant anymore yeah. unfortunately for women who don't have that luxury they look like they're pregnant still. Sure. So it's like another kick where people are like, oh, how long have you got left? And yeah. when are you, or when are you due? And so it's like, it's, yeah, it's rubbish. Have really you read rubbish. the Adam Kay book, This Is Going To Hurt? No, no. So he was, a, um, he was a consultant in the NHS. He was a, uh, he was a gynecologist and an oconologist. Uh, That's not the right word, is it? Um, it's 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 linked to gynaecology. Okay. He works in the NHS for ten years, and he talks in great detail about the experiences of you know of of losing children and of mm. C sections, all these kind of things. I think in a way that book has helped to I think share a lot of those experiences and probably destigmatize it to a certain point. Yeah, as I think well. I think that's important. The language around death and the language around uh, loss of like babies in general is 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 an awful subject it's you know it's not like i can understand why people don't want to talk about it mm. but in not normalizing it it kind of chastises people that go through it thinking that there's there's a bit of like shame with it sometimes mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. for especially mothers who suddenly feel like they're not they if, if they don't have a vaginal birth mm -hmm. you know in our country in this country you call it natural births mm -hmm. in france they call it vaginal births mm -hmm. so it doesn't make you know it's not like the, the words around it just make people women feel like they're not women yeah. unless they have a have a birth through the vagina that's successful and you know and then my poor partner you know goes through all those questions of what did I do wrong? Is it my body and feeling guilty? And you know, it's rubbish. It's not our fault. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's important to to be to be curt when you're going through it with with the facts, just to, just to normalise the situation yeah. for for future victims. I don't know what you call it. Yeah. Um, or those sort of situations, just to make them feel like they're not like a leper. Yeah. 
um, I think it's you know that it, as you all know with, with with what you've been through physically, a lot of people will probably I'm, I'm assuming kind of talk to you about what you've been through, mm-hmm. but in a way where it's they don't quite ask or they're 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 ashamed to ask or they're embarrassed. Yeah, and there's an awkward uh, there's an awkwardness around the conversation, which, yeah. which I think. Um, strangely never comes from um again to use that like the victim like in other words the person who had the experience of whatever it is a disability or a or an abnormal birth the the awkwardness is never on their end it's always on the other person's end yeah and i think um i don't know particularly in regards disability i think that's something that we can do um speaking for myself or people in the disabled community can do to help change that language um and mm. to normalize it because we don't see ourselves as any different no you know? if this is all you've ever known then it's not um it's not an injury you know no. again it's just like i've never like desperately wanted to be normal but like i think everyone has this moment in their life where like they have a realization like ah. Oh, I'm not the only one who's thought that or been through yeah. that or and the feeling is so wonderful. Mm. It's like an alleviation of like you're not the you know you're not going to die alone in this world because you know you, that weird thing you do as someone else does or you know you're not the only person who's lost their child or yeah. all these conditions that people go that have you know they they're not the only ones and it's it's nice to feel part of the community but to go back to my point I think around Around our daughter's death, it was like, I think, the, as you as you well know, and a lot of people may not know who's listening to this, mm. this it's a very delicate situation, our relationship with journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, not because they fucking decide how, how good your album is out of 10. Like, that's by the by. It's the probing nature of someone coming into your environment and then just asking you shit mm-hmm. who you don't know or trust. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't trust them. They're mm-hmm. journalists. Like, you know. um, and however good their intentions may be, there's going to be a headline, and that headline is going to be clickbait. Absolutely, and especially that, now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like the clickbait thing is, is you know, it's almost tabloidized mm. every fucking yeah. publications. Yeah. Because in a way, The Guardian needs to get people to punch in on their... On their website, and that comes from something. Obviously, they it's need not, the clicks as much as yeah, anyone else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and I'm guessing it's probably not as tasteless as some of the other papers, but it's still there. The nature is still there. You've got to get that hook. Yeah. So there is a delicate relationship we have, and some people are really good with dealing with it, and some people aren't. I'm one of the people that aren't. I'm not good at dealing with being interviewed. I'm articulate and I'm open, um, but I walk out of there thinking they're my best mate. And then, like, you know, it's like I, I come back, like, reading this thing. And it's often not them. It would be their editor going, nah, we need more sensation in there, you know. And they just mm-hmm. kind of weave a couple of your sentences together. And then you've got me saying that I want to kill someone or whatever, <laughs> you know. But, well, I would disagree with that because I, I think you are because you're because you speak the truth and it's the unedited truth. And I think, mm. like, to put it bluntly, there's a lot of fucking boring pop stars. Not calling you a pop star, but like... I wish I was. Yeah. (laughs) Hi there. 
This is the bit in the podcast where you might normally hear a cheesy commercial for something. But instead of telling you about Blue Apron or Groupon deals near you, I just want to have a quick word in your ear to tell you about another amazing organisation called Music Minds Matter. Launched by the UK charity Help Musicians after the tragic death of Linkin Park vocalist Chester Bennington in 2017, Music Minds Matter is a landmark 24-7 free mental health service, offering advice, signposting, clinical pathways and CBT to combat the many different sorts of challenges and complexities that people in the music industry may come up against. Now more than ever, when the livelihoods of road crews, venue staff, promoters and artists alike have been completely overlooked, there's perhaps some comfort to be found in knowing that the good people at Music Minds Matter are here to help, even if our multiple pleas to the government have been completely ignored. As ever, you'll find links and much more down in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to my conversation with Joe. I use a lot of boxing analogy now because I started boxing. But, you know, I think with journalism now, especially with this new album campaign, when it comes, I'm going to use the counterpunch. I'm going to wait for them and kind of, like, listen to where they're leading before I go in. I haven't got the energy to, like, bullshit. Mm. Uh, Like, I I had one interview where I was really quite aggressive because I was just so fucking bored of being misquoted mm. and sensationalised and it was at a time when like sleeper mods were like just slagging me off and fat white families started chipping in so I was just like I think I should just stop doing fucking interviews and then this guy turns up and he's like alright mate and I'm like you're not my fucking mate what's your like what's your agenda yeah. type thing and then I afterwards I went and apologised to him I was like look man I'm really fucking sorry like yeah. And he was just like, it's fine, I'm actually a fan, like, it's cool, I get it, like, it's, it's tough. And I explained and it was good. But yeah, I think going forward, like, it was really important for me to be open and honest. Uh, On your terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it really, it, it, interviews really help as well with your creative thinking because if you're doing an out, if you, you know, you've made an album, talking about it is kind of like, you learn more about it and you learn more about the process yourself, which is cool. And like, and obviously with, with all of our music and I'm sure yours is like episodic and of, of what's going on in your actual life. And the songs take on different meanings as you go out and play shows and travel your relationship with those songs. I'm sure, yeah. particularly with the lyrics, you, you know, you'll find new ways of engaging with that anger or that grief or joy whatever it is you'll find new ways of engaging with that depending on where you're at in your life at that point it's really cool like there was a point where i started healing quite a lot on tour in europe and like it might my, my, my therapy was going really well there's a really amazing charity in bristol called network which is affordable therapy okay. so it's free or whatever you can afford that that day you know and so I was on that and like it was this process of going on tour and learning so much about these songs that I've been singing. And there's times, it's never automatic in a sense where you don't love it, but there's times where you'll sing a whole verse and not think about the lyrics. Yeah. You're going, it's still an amazing experience and I'm not, and I'm not numb to it, but it's, it's hard to explain. It's like you've done it a million times so you always find joy from it or pain from it. But suddenly... There was a song, Temple and Goffo, we did on our first album, which is about my mate's depression. And um, actually, 
I'm just going to inject say my girlfriend is a huge Idols fan. That's her favourite song of yours. Oh, is it? And that was one of the, that was one of the lyrics I was going to ask you about. Oh, sick. Um, uh, that's my favourite song actually. Yeah, still I think. There's no right side of the bed with a body like mine and a mind like mine. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think we've all felt that. We've all mm. we've all been there, but somehow art has the ability to just. Uh, I don't know. Um, when you hear something articulated by someone else that you respect, that you love, and it can speak so directly to your experience, that's such a fucking powerful thing. Yeah, um, it is, yeah. Yeah, it's magic. Sometimes I'm a bit like, oh, I wish I'd come up with that. But normally I'm just in awe, you know? Yeah. Like normally it's, it's rappers where I'm like, oh, I wish I'd said that. Because yeah, yeah. if I rap, raps like a really, like it's people like Kanye West, his wordplay and his succinctness, I want to be as succinct as that. Like to be able to sum up a whole culture in one sentence, I think is a real talent. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you about that because um, I've heard you talk about when you were growing up, you were listening to Garage, you were listening to Jungle, yeah, yeah. hip hop. Yeah. What was it that you found there that you didn't, you know, that you didn't find necessarily in guitar music or... Yeah, I I think there was a couple of reasons. One, like I felt, I never really felt like I fitted in. It was weird when you were talking to me about that lyric. I went back. I was just remembering this thing where I was in in the back of the car as a kid, and I was born with club feet. So I had like my feet when I was born. For anyone that doesn't understand what club feet is. Like, I think you're born with missing tendons or something. Basically, my feet were backwards when I was born, so I had 11 operations to straighten them out. Wow. Which meant I wasn't very athletic, so I was heavily overweight as a kid, and I, I, I had a really strange walk, obviously. And I remember sitting in the back of the car and just being like, I'm never going to be normal. Like, no, like, I, like, and I, I listed all the things that were, I wanted to change in my body. And I was only, like, 10, and I just think that's so sad, like fuck like just going through like everything I wanted different like I hated my teeth and mm. you know because having a gap is like not cool or right. anything I don't know it was just stupid I was just feeling sorry for myself but um it's 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 nice that someone picked up on that lyric just because again like Temphorn and Goffo like touring that song just suddenly made me feel so empowered yeah that like I'd gone through stuff and I started to love myself again and like that's what it means it changes over time and, and changes yeah. meaning but like gives you strength again and makes you see a, a new perspective on yourself because it's like a diary isn't yeah. it really that's yeah absolutely so reading back on your diaries is like sometimes quite sad I expect but really empowering when you're in a good place yeah 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 it is but yeah I think I, I got into hip hop because, and garage and grime and, and jungle and stuff, because it was very far away from Devon where I was growing up. And I, I never really enjoyed Devon as a place of, for people. Like, I never really liked the people there. You were in Exeter yeah. growing up, yeah. So, like, obviously I had lots of amazing friends there and still some of the best friends I'll ever have, I expect. But I just hated it. I hated the, the, the nature of the people there and... and what it means to be from Devon. I think now I look back on it, you know, some romanticism there, like there's some great parts to it. You do a lot of amazing stuff for free. and like. But I think in general, it's just a boring place. Mm. 
for an 18 year old, you know, I just wanted to get out. And by the time I was 10, I was really listening to blues, a lot of blues and soul music. And then like, the na- generally the natural transition is from blues and soul is, is hip hop and R&B. And then, Who is it? You're, is it Sam Cooke you're a huge fan of? I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Sam Cooke. Otis Redding is my favourite. Yeah, yeah, I've got an Otis yeah. Redding tattoo. Otis Redding, I think his voice is stunning. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think it just it just helped me. It gave me my own language. I think finding music and listening to it was the first time, and not not listening to what every all the other kids my age were listening to, yeah. and feeling like I had my own place to go to, yeah. which was Black America, mm-hmm. um, and it was just like this me being a tourist and going away on holiday every night, and I always had my headphones on, always always had my headphones on, and then when Jungle came and and, and Garage, it was like a British thing that I found just as exciting and, and, and as foreign, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like Devon had like a, a, a like a banging yeah. grime scene or sure, anything. Sure, sure. But, um, raves, you must have had a few raves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were, there were still flagons and cider knocking about, do you know what I mean? But, um, yeah, there were some great raves. Uh, Jungle was great for that. Um, it's a good drummer bass scene in Devon. It just, and then it stuck with me, but I got to an age where I realised that there was a lot, about being a tourist that isn't healthy, yeah. especially with creative thinking. And I got to an age where I, I, I wanted my own language and suddenly it was a lot more relatable to guitar music. And actually the first band that I really got behind as a new discovery, you know, like what I was saying with my thing in hip hop is, is I think everyone has this, especially musicians is at some point you find something that you think is truly yours mm-hmm. that speaks to you and you alone. Mm-hmm. And like when the Maccabees came out, I was just like, this is the band that I've been waiting for. Like, obviously I love the strokes. The strokes was like the band that got me into bands. Yeah. But when the Maccabees happened, I was just, there was something about everything they were doing. They're like, I think it was their colorful nature and their joyful playfulness about and their tenderness but still with like an aggression with X-ray and stuff like that, yeah. that I just found was like really spoke to me. So like it was at, at that point where I really found that it was, there was a new language out there for, through bands, you know. I completely share that love because I think they had this real, you know, the White Brothers are such aggressive, um, powerful guitar players. And yeah. they, they kind of, they powered, they powered the machine, but then Orlando there was always vulnerability in his voice. Yeah. And like first love, I think back to something like that. Um, yeah. It felt so open and inviting and kind of feminine in a way, mm. which had a sort of dissonance with, you know, the, the, I mean, that guitar, generally speaking, that sort of early 2000s guitar scene, it was in the wake of the Libertines and it was quite blokey. Yeah. Um, it was quite pubby. And I think yeah. the Maccabees, to me, they, they tapped into something higher than that. Yeah, I mean, it was a really beautiful balance, mm. you know. It's like there's nothing dogmatic about it. It's just very humane because there, there's a there's a there's a like, like you were saying with the guitars, it's really like almost like Gang of Four, like yeah. quite a violent, yeah. angular sound with a tenderness to it, and the lyrics, uh, like that that almost have brushstrokes, you know, it like paints a scene yeah. rather than like telling a story or like yeah. in in a sense like you know like the Libertines would or. The Strokes did not was, to take anything away. I, you know, I was no, a huge of course not. No, no, no. Well, yeah, but, but yeah, um, I was just talking about a new language and yeah. a new way of, of creating something new in, in a scene that was that was quite vibrant and like 
there was lots of and, and Block Party did that as well yeah. you know like Definitely. like kind of like that, that I, guess, I guess close closer to the cure you know yeah that thing where there's there's a lot of dynamics there which yeah. gives people like me room to breathe as a fan because i'm i'm a lot of different things i'm quite yeah. confused and like it's nice to be able to feel like there are people out there that go through all sorts of things i think Absolutely. like people people like when they meet me they think i'm going to be like this like aggro like like fucking like you know like <laughs> Which I can be after like nineteen Guinnesses, <laughs> like I, I, I'm also like you know I'm a very loving, compassionate person, and I think finding a, a confidence in talking about love and compassion yeah. gave me a new lease of life. Like it saved my life, really, yeah. to be able to just be like, actually, that's who I am. Like I am. Like it's, there's nothing. There's no kudos in talking about love community mm. so it's been done a million times before but you know what that's what i need at the moment in my life mm. it's not what my country needs i mean in my opinion it is i think it is what what, what your country needs yeah our, yeah our yeah, needs, yeah yeah especially yeah. now yeah it know. is i'm in agreement with you but what i mean is like i think it's important for me as an artist to be like it's not about telling everyone what they need but it's about telling me what i need as a person in this country, I need community. I need unity. I need compassion. Empathy is the only thing I've got that will fight fascism. Empathy. Mm-hmm. That's what I've got. I've got a vote. I've got a mouth. I've got a good platform with with the band. Mm-hmm. And I've got empathy. And like that might not suit some people's vision and they think that's too romantic. But I'm still breathing and I'm enjoying it. And I think it's important that I s- stay true to what I believe in and that is love. And that is, yeah. I mean, it, saying that sounds cliched, but there's, there's a power to that. There really is. That I feel stronger just saying it. There is something important about love and I'll make sure I keep fighting that. I, th- I think w- one of the things that makes idols so different and special is that, counterpoint of love but also violence yeah and 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 i mean i actually i've i remember you there was an interview where you described it you described brutalism as loving violence which was i thought was just amazing because i think there is a violence in your music and i and it's sort of inherent in a way to the genres that your your sound comes from do you think violence is missing in music today yeah i think violence is missing Violence is not missing in popular culture, but what is missing is the respect of violence. If you look back in time, like before perspectival painting, there was like crass paintings of religion. And then what reignited a passion for religion in our, in, in, uh, across the world with, with the Catholic Church, Christianity, was these paintings that were so violent and dramatic and deep there was a lot of depth in the pictures like Caravaggio and all the other masters around that time where there was the dark and light of everything and everything was so painful and huge and ornate and that that's the humanity of it that's that's what life is life is so violent you're you're thrust into this world of light you're told to to do these things and learn all this stuff don't fuck up and then you're definitely going to die mm-hmm. And like that's that, certain. Yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> like question about that. So like, 
I think there's there's a sense in which that is just a violent. That's the humane aspect of art is is the violence. Yeah. What's happening now is that violence is like ultra violent. Which isn't humane. Yeah. It's like it dislocates you from empathy. It dislocates you from the feeling of being human. Ultra violence is like pornographic, and it's and pornography itself mm-hmm. isn't realistic. It's not humane vision of what sex really is. Mm-hmm. It's not the most passionate, important perspective on what sex is. Sex is a really important language within love, mm-hmm. within friendship, within. Or lots of different things it's, and it can be playful and it's not like it has to be the serious thing between a man and a woman it could be anything you want it could be fisting yeah. if it's done with consent you know and love <laughs> yeah yeah but like it's the, the the important thing to remember is that like this ultra violence in popular culture and like the speed in which everything's coming out it's like there's no there's no respect for it there's no respect for violence you know like a mili- like the, the head count in a, in a in a modern action movie yeah is like probably like 150. Yeah. Whereas like anyone that watches Irreversible will see that, that not moving away with the camera scene, with the camera shot, is what makes that humane. Because that is, that is a death. That's a real, you know, that's a rape scene and a death. And that makes you suddenly respect it. It's it the may- only film that I've, I've had to walk away from. Yeah. I, cu- I couldn't. Because I you, you, you know what's coming. And there is this sort of foreboding thing that's, that's creeping up on you through the film. I had to just switch it off. It's fucked. It, it's completely fucked. <laughs> but genius. And yeah. it's one of, the, one of the most respectful films of violence. Yeah. It, it's not gratuitous. It's like, that's a horrible story. And because it goes back, I'm ruining, uh, t- uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, <laughs> Irreversible. Uh, no, no, what's it? Is it a teaser? Oh, like a um, plot spoiler. This spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, there you spoiler go. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. It goes backwards. And that the the plot going backwards for me just makes everything like it's the it's it's the power of cause and effect, yeah. and that thing of really respecting violence and respecting human life, which is is what I'm getting at. I think it's like for me, brutalism was like a time where I really didn't respect myself. Yeah. I was heavily into all sorts of bad stuff, and I was not a good person. I you know I, I did horrible shit oh, I was just not a nice person to be around and like that album was like coming to really and realising it and it was almost like a wail it was like mm. a big release of like I need to sort my life out and then Joy was like I'm sorting my life out mm. and then the next album is like this is how I'm sorting my life out yeah. <laughs> it's like the trilogy of uh, therapy I, I'm going to ask you about the next album but I just want to fly back for a minute You when you were talking about Caravaggio and the Masters I thought that was really interesting because in a way the kind of great artistic movements and culture have come from these times of conflict yeah you know brutalism obviously after the second world war post-punk in the sort of Thatcher era yeah and yet today I feel that too many artists are afraid of sticking their heads above the parapet and actually talking about what's going on around them Mm. apart from bands such as yourselves and, and and grime i think actually is where that's happening grime yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and in a positive proactive way mm. you know they do that's just that's a a scene which created a community it with like you know from sound system culture type vibe mm. where um they did something positive for working class areas and actually went against government legislation and, mm. and tried to change things for for the better 
yeah, that was a kind of a positive reaction to a violent treatment. They, you know, like being stuck in high rises is a violent situation. You know, it's a volatile situation. Lots of people forced into a tight space on top of each other. Mm. People, I think, overlook that sometimes. That's yeah. a, it's, a, it's a violent situation, yeah. and a la- like a lack of opportunity is a violent. It's, that is, so almost like and Pirate a, Radio was born from that, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it's like a violent existence. They haven't dis, they haven't chosen to be there. They're just thrust into that. So I think it's great that, that stuff like that comes out. It's just unfortunate that within that means that the the, the government see that culture and, and art that comes from it is is vital for British culture. So they can try and give more opportunity to working class areas in London and Manchester, Birmingham and all that stuff. Yeah. But like, yeah, I think, with, you know, Spanish Civil War, it's like some of the best painters, Goya, Picasso, you know, sure. all that stuff. This is like, that's what creates art is, is really existential processing is where the best art comes from, where you, you, you fear for your life or you fear for your country people or you feel for the welfare of people you don't know but that you still care about. And that makes you question who you are, what your place is in the world. And that mm-hmm. violence comes out in your art, you know, that, that like... So I think it's, it's always going to be the way. I just... I think the reason why maybe uh, nowadays it's, it's not as apparent is because in the 70s that like you mentioned, Thatcherite Britain... It was like there was a lot of naivety in art. There was a lot of in, in naivety. I mean, an invention of genre in, in different all over the world. Seventies was the birthplace of you know lots of movements, sure. a lot a lot of genres of music, and yeah. and with that came playfulness and naivety. And I think with current music, it's interesting. Sorry, just on that note, it's interesting that you mentioned the seventies because obviously seventies um, fashion is has had a huge comeback over the last few years. Yeah. But then you look at the way, you look at our, our politics and look back to the politics of the 70s and yeah. the austerity, you know, it's, it almost makes sense that the fashion of the 70s has come back because there's there's aspects of, I think, living in this country which is just harking back to this, well, all the, all the same struggles from those times feel like they're almost repeating themselves just in, in a slightly different context. Yeah, I think, but I don't think the working classes have as much opportunity as they yeah. did before. I think the 70s was like a more volatile time. They're like, I don't know what it is. It just feels like at the moment, I think it has something to do with the internet. Yeah. I think it's the, the, there's a regurgitation of information that's so fast yeah. that everyone's a fucking expert. Yeah. So like people aren't sticking their head out talking about politics because it's like, well, that's already been done so many times. Like, it's, it's just so cliche to talk about politics when things are going wrong. You know, and like, you know, I'm, I'm criticised for, you know, my sloganeering and, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm purposefully being naive. Like, that's a, that, that is my armour, is naivety. That, that in my art is, is to be childlike, mm. to strip things down for what they are. Not what they're politicised as, mm. not what the quietest is going to rewrite it as. Mm. What I'm telling you it is, mm. which is me despairing at a lack of empathy mm. with our government and the working classes. Full mm. stop. That's it. Like, mm. I don't have to fucking apologise for that. That's the truth. Mm. I hate the way the working classes in this country are being treated by our government. Mm. I hate the way corporations aren't paying tax. Yet there's people queuing up for fucking food on my street. Yeah. Like, for food, 
That's not a government scheme. That's a charity giving food to people that are in this country. It's a developed country. It's Mm. insanity. We've got enough money to throw at fucking footballers. That isn't a balance that's healthy. That's 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 a fucked balance. So yeah, it's cliched for me, but a lot of people are scared because they just don't want to be laughed at. Like, I I hate it. I hate being like, I, I don't read YouTube comments. I don't read reviews anymore because it pisses me off or it upsets me I, like i want to be loved as much as the next man yeah. i'm not cool enough to be like yeah i don't give a fuck i'm just making my art i am going to make my art and i'm not going to change the way i say things or what i say but it still hurts when someone's like you're shit I'm like, well, ah. but i think admitting to that vulnerability is so important um yeah. and i think yeah. as an artist especially so because i think we do have this kind of disconnect with people that we see on a platform and we forget that actually they're, you know, susceptible to all the same vulnerabilities and put downs as anyone else. Yeah. You know, you mentioned social media. I think that the kind of Twitter sphere has facilitated obviously trolling and accountability is a huge, huge thing. And we're learning this. We're like slowly learning how to use this technology. Yeah. Yes, it's a weird one, like accountability. And and that, that is a lack of empathy, isn't it? If you like cause Jay and Silent Bob, like where they, they go around to the guy, there's some guy like trolling them on the internet. So they just find out where he lives to go around and kick the shit out of it. <laughs> and like, obviously that's like not a, a positive thing. Yeah. Accountability isn't going and beating someone up. It's a funny way of just showing that. Yeah. It's like, if people were just like, ah, oh, if I type this, I might ruin their week. How would I feel if I, someone just fucking made me first shit for a week? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it, it's just that simple. Like why be a cunt? Mm-hmm. but the, this anonymity it's like people in Bristol the loveliest people but when they get behind a car they are fucking psychos <laughs> it's like a city of assholes <laughs> if they're all in cars they yeah. are fucking pricks yeah, yeah, yeah. but like outside of cars you, you just wouldn't think it well I think it dehumanises people doesn't it because yeah, we're all in you know the, we're all, all in the Gary Newman song and we're, yeah. you know, we're driving around in these dehumanised bubbles. And they do, you know, road rage comes from that. It comes from... We're sort of brought back to this sort of more animal state, I think. Yeah. Which is ugly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really ugly. And, like, you know, I think it's that dislocation that... I don't think people enjoy it. It's, it, it's quite the opposite. I think people want to feel connected. Yeah. And being in their cars on their own... Uh, you know, it's that lack of connection there. Yeah. And, like, I think the internet's was built to connect people, yeah. but has as, as had the adverse effect, as cars have. It's built so that you could get somewhere quicker to connect you to that thing. But in, in that, you're dislocated from the world and it makes you feel vulnerable, but you've got this thing that you can fucking kill people with yeah. or ruin someone's week with. So you're like, yeah. For me, it's that, that mindfulness. The only way I can get through ignoring the assholes is by not responding at all, and not listen to it. Because, like, in CBT, I'm just learning now, the only way, really, to be a part of a conversation is to be assertive. If you're not assertive, you're either aggressive or passive-aggressive. If I read the YouTube comments, or, like, you know, Jason Williamson, or one of those cunts from Fat White Family, it's like... I, I'm either going to be like, no, I'm like, no, I am sincere, I do mean what I say, no, like, you know, or I just, like, just say shit aggressive yeah. nonsense that like well you, well you rise to it yeah and like that. well that's it isn't it yeah. you rise to it you're just like an asshole like the rest of them and like mm. 
it's really tough like to to kind of see that and be like yeah the internet is just a cesspit most of these people aren't bad people they're just in it they don't realize it you take them out of the car take them away from the laptop you have a conversation with them you know the the alt-right i'm sure if they're like have a go at me about my political views i'll be like okay do you want should we sit down and talk about it cool you're buying the pint um (laughs) and um and then you know you you you'd end up finding similarities there. You know, not everyone on the right and the left want completely different things. They just, the the strategies of getting those things are completely different. It's just about empathy, again, for me. Hey, podballs. Sorry to keep barging in on your eardrums like this. This is the part of the episode which we like to use to give a little shout out to other artists, podcasters, or advocates who are doing great things. This week, I want to tell you about another Joe I'm also a big fan of. Joe Tresini is an actor and comedian who first made his name playing the character of Dennis Savage on the Channel 4 soap Hollyoaks. But more recently, Joe's become something of a viral star on Twitter thanks to his short confessional sketch videos in which he talks about the struggles of overcoming addiction and living with a borderline personality disorder. Making comical use of devices like split screen, a ukulele and occasionally a puppet of himself, Joe's videos are always brutally honest and often hilarious too and have clocked up views in the millions. Hello, it's World Mental Health Day. Every day is World Mental Health Day. Just today there's a hashtag, um, which is lovely. Um, There's a sentence I keep seeing and it's don't suffer in silence. Now, I'm not suffering today, um, but I was going to be silent um, and I'm going against all of my instincts and uh, I'm going to tell you about my last couple of days. So I had a panic attack on a train in Preston on Monday and um, if you've not had a panic attack, they're fun. Um, If by fun you mean feel like you're gonna die um uh so uh, and it took me two days to recover i've literally spent two days um uh being able to do nothing and it's like i was wearing a knuckle duster with kill yourself written on it and my own voice was pummeling the inside of my forehead with it non-stop for 48 hours um why am i telling you i'm telling you because um i shouldn't be ashamed of that happening because i didn't pick it Um, And if there's anything that today is about, it's about telling anybody that feels anything like that, that it's okay to tell other people. So I am telling all of you people that I don't know that that happened to me. And uh, and I didn't do that thing that my brain was telling me to do. I waited and uh, and I waited and I waited and I waited and I felt like I was being beaten up for the inside out. But I woke up today and it was gone. (laughs) <laughs> which is lovely. Um, and now you know about it. So it's not mine anymore. If you feel like that, if you feel anything, please tell somebody. Not just today, every day. Lots of love. Be nice to each other. That was actor and comedian Joe Tresini speaking about his struggles with mental health and the effects of living with a borderline personality disorder. Links down in the show notes for where to watch Joe's videos, all of which are incredibly moving and funny too. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to the other Joe. Just flying back to you, we were talking about social media. How do you maintain a healthy relationship with social media? Because I think that's something that we're all trying to figure out in our own way. Well, it started as a rule for me on Facebook where I'd only ever post something that was either uh, funny, informative or something else. Meme. Memes. Yeah, maybe. And then I just I went off Facebook. For me, I just, I'm off Facebook. That's how I deal with Facebook. I'm off it. That's yeah. the only healthy way I could like... 
it's just not good for me. Yeah. I, I get anxiety. Just responding to like loads of messages. People that just want stuff from you. If you're a friend, you could call me. Yeah. Simple as that. Uh, and then Instagram, I just follow artists, mm. basically, or skateboarders, or just stuff that I like looking at. I don't follow, I, if like some of the guys, like John is, is on our Instagram as well, but he, he follows his mates, so I just delete him. <laughs> I don't want to fucking follow you, mate. Sorry, but, John. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, John's mates. But, like, you know, it's not interesting to me. Like, I want to see, like, art and videos of... Yeah. Or like musicians and just stuff that the Instagram's for, you know. Yeah, it's like absolutely. It's a little feed of like fun stuff. Uh, and I follow kids getting hurt, which is like <laughs> <laughs> exactly what it says on the yeah, tin. Yeah, yeah. And um, what else do I follow? Oh, a lot of pastry chefs. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it. like, I think that's how I deal with it. It's just to treat it as like a little candy shop of of beautiful things, because that's what it can be. Unless you, you follow, like, you know. Do you know what I've got really into? Go. Mudlarks. What's that? Mudlarking. So they're people that go along the shores of the Thames looking for discarded treasure, essentially. Sick. But it's not discarded treasure. It's like, you know, the occasional Victorian clay pipe or a coin. Or a friend of mine's a mudlark and he found a sawn-off shotgun, but not an old one, like a couple of months old. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they had they had a whole exhibition of it at the um, Oxo Tower in London. I went and I met all these. And these mudlarks have thousands of followers on Instagram. You know, they're, they're these kind of internet yeah. cult celebrities. Um, what a great way to follow them. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, what, what have they found this week kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. See, that's what, yeah. you know, that's a, that's, that's a visual treat, isn't yeah. it? Like, episodic... Nothing in between. You don't have to yeah. see what the, this mudlark's had for dinner. Yeah, that's it. And, and, like, you know, what he thinks about current politics. All it is is that, you know, that little nugget of whatever they found that week. Exactly. And that's great. Talking of social media, you can't talk about idols without talking about your incredible fan community, yeah. the AF gang. Yeah. I mean, could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Because it's sort of a phenomenon. It's hard for me to understand it. Yeah. Because, like, I started calling everyone Afghan, like, because I, I came up with it because it was, um, it's a word in Dutch, I think it means entrance, or Ausgang is entrance or exit. It was Afghan, I was like, that's cool, like, Af as fuck gang, that's cool. We should call ourselves that, like, you know, that idea that you give, you give everything you can to what you're doing, that you love, just give everything, you know. Yeah. That was the idea, the premise behind Afghan. Is that if you if you want to be a member, you just got to give everything to what you love. I didn't really describe it online or anything. I just started going, "All right, Afghan," when we were announcing a gig or something. Hmm. And then the next thing I know, everyone's using it. That's you know following us. Um, and then I think the rest is is in itself self-explanatory. Really, it's like we just wanted to create a safe space at our gigs to feel comfortable. Yeah. No matter who you are, even, and this is what Joy was about, even if you're a right wing, even if you're an asshole, come and feel safe and maybe you'll meet people that aren't like-minded and you might feel better mm -hmm. and at least be able to have a dialogue with people on the left. I think that's what something, something that people get wrong about inclusivity a lot is that inclusivity means everybody. 
Yeah. There, there, there is no um, distinction to make within inclusivity. Yeah. And I think if you're going to say our shows are open to everybody, you, you have to allow those people to come in and more often than not, they will probably have their minds changed because they'll be in an environment which is a loving environment. Yes, there'll be people that are attracted to what they perceive as, as, as the next wave of punk or violent music, whatever. But I think when they get to those shows, the message is just so pertinent. I'm thinking about your Glastonbury set that you played last year, which I watched back online. And um, I think it was at the end of uh, Danny Dendelko and you... Yeah. you you were just visibly moved. Mm-hmm. There's something so special about that. That's not a normal punk show. No, it wasn't. That's why I think the only reason why I, I, I lean away from the idea of being a punk band, just saying we're not a punk band. It's not because I have an affinity with punk music. I love punk music and I love what it stood for. But stood is the important bit to rely, like to think about in that sentence. Mm-hmm. It's a period of time in the 70s that didn't last very long. The mentality of punk is just subversive, proactive behaviour in art and culture that goes against the oppressive governments that we're under. So when you look at it like that, grime is punk. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't want to take away from what grime is and call it punk, because it's not punk, it's grime. So I think, like for me, I don't want there to be this thing where you're not a punk so you don't feel like you're part of it. It's yeah. it's more important that I think people see it as a community of people that just like our music. Of all ages as well, because there yeah. will be some of those older punks who yeah. see something in you that hasn't, you know, it, that, that f- triggers some kind of nostalgic yeah. uh, switch. But there is this swell of younger fans who yeah. who, who don't remember it, but you're speaking to that to them very directly. And also, yeah. and also girls, like I feel, because when you think of punk for some reason, you, you, there is this sort of very masculine association with it i feel like your audiences are are very mixed yeah i hope so that's what i want old punks to feel like that they've got a bit of a voice in me you know Mm. and i also want young women to feel like they've got a voice in me because like i'm just interested and i want to learn and i want to meet as many different people as possible i just want to jump a little bit sideways if we could um Samaritans, yeah, obviously the song, but also um, how how did your work with Samaritans come about? Well, uh, I I just I wrote a song, Samaritans, and it kind of wrote itself. It's the, the fastest I've ever written a song. I think I wanted to call it Samaritans because I, I was hoping that they would reach out then, mm-hmm. and or, or someone would ask why, and I'd explain what Samaritans is. Mm-hmm. You know, the the song was going to be called Samaritans Phone Number. Wow, but then I didn't want it to go away from what the word Samaritans because then people can look it up. But also, there was a rapper that did it. <laughs> Speaking of rappers stealing ideas, yeah. he didn't steal the idea; he came up with it first. But it was like a, a really similar thing where he he put this suicide helpline. It's it's really weird. It was like the same week. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, it was really weird. I wanted the song to make people feel like they're not alone. Yeah, and then because of that they'd see the word and just go, fuck it, I'm going to call him. Mm. And it has saved people's lives, I know. Mm. Saved their life. Like, How fucking insane is that? Mm. Just calling someone up saved their life. I think that is stunning. Mm. Volunteers are waiting at the other end of the line to save your life. Mm. And it, 
it's that simple. Again, it sounds cliched, but go fuck yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's important. It's like, I just, I, I wanted to highlight that um, and have that discussion because there's been times where I just needed to be saved, you know? Yeah. And that's it. Just being vulnerable is the first step. Asking for help mm. is that first step. It's the bravest, hardest thing you could do. It changes your life, saves your life. And uh, I think that's what's important is just to remind people that it's there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose that steers us on to toxic masculinity. I mean, it's not it's not a term that I that I like because I no. feel that mental health affects everybody, and I feel like it to be inclusive, you need to talk about. I think as soon as you say, "Well, this is this is a feminist issue," or "or this is a toxic mask," to me, it's all the same thing. Yeah. But do you think as men we're having these having the difficult conversations enough? He, he's getting better. Yeah. You know, my dad is. Uh, an artist and has been all his life so you'd assume that he's very in tune with his emotions because he's quite expressive and mm. honest I've never seen him cry I've seen him cry once and I just think that's strange someone that I know to be so emotionally aware and mature I, I cry a lot you know mm. and I'm glad I do because it's, 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 an, it's an important process it just helps me when I'm feeling angry or sad or whatever. I mean, I don't, interestingly. Right. And I've, I've always joked that I've just got like underdeveloped tear ducts. <laughs> but I think maybe on a more subconscious level, part of me still doesn't feel like it's, it's acceptable. It's okay in a cinema where no one can see you. But when the lights come up, you know, I'm very quick to like yeah. rub it all away. Yeah. I mean, really, like for me, it's like... It's, I, my thing was it wasn't toxic masculinity. It was it was just masculinity. Yeah. The problematic nature of applying almost rules yeah. set to what it is to be masculine. If boys and girls and everyone in between are allowed to be masculine, it's fine. There's a language behind that. It's great. But if if there's this kind of pressures and shame behind being or not being masculine, then there's a problem there. Mm. So. It's just down to emotional maturity. It's something I'm learning now. Mm-hmm. This is the third album, which is about pragmatic steps in the guise of existentialism, you know, understanding who you are and accepting that and let it pass through you in order to be a better person. Mm-hmm. So accepting that you're not always going to be liked and, uh, you know, in arguments, not, but I, I've got a temper and I shout and, I, and it's like, stopping that how do I stop that I take a step back and breathe and really think about why I'm threatened or why I'm sad or why I'm angry mm. and learn to articulate that and have a dialogue with the other person so mm. you could get past it be assertive and have a result at the end of those conversations those debates or arguments or whatever you want to call it I think it's about emotional maturity just accepting that you're not the strongest man in the room yeah so, because we're running out of time, this is the bit where I'm going to ask you a question we ask each of our guests, which yeah. is, what are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for? Uh, equality, art, and chocolate. I love that. I absolutely love that. I know our time's coming to an end, so I just want to say thank you for giving us your time. 
I know our fans and listeners will continue to be inspired by your music as we are. It's been an absolute pleasure and it means so much to have these conversations with you. So. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for all the stuff you're doing for the NHS. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to episode eight of Things Worth Fighting For. And also to Frank Carter, my uncle Hugh and Joe Talbot, all of whom gave their time so generously. As you can hear from that interview, Joe's a passionate and beautifully honest man. I got so much from the openness of our conversation and felt a real sense of warmth travelling back to London on the train that day, which stayed with me afterwards. I wish we could all have conversations like that every day. Maybe we can. Either way, I'm massively chuffed for Joe and the whirlwind of love that surrounds Idol's music. It really couldn't happen to a nicer or more deserving guy. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in today's show, you can find a whole ton of links down in the show notes relating to this conversation, including how to speak to the Samaritans or Music Minds Matter, or where to seek advice if someone close to you is having a bit of a hard time. You'll also find links for Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes' brilliant 2019 album, The End of Suffering, as well as Idol's social media, where you can stay updated with their 2021 tour dates and imminent global domination and also an order link for their mighty chart-smashing third album, Ultra Mono, which is out in the world now. We'll be back very soon with another episode, so stay tuned, and don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and give us a beautiful little rating if you enjoyed the show. This episode was brought to you by Acast, and produced by my sonic partner in crime, Mr Matthew Twaits. As always, I'd like to thank Kate Jones and Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all their amazing help and powers of coordination. And now, to play you out, we're going to listen to Watching Yourself Slowly Disappear from our sixth album, A Billion Heartbeats. I've been Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets. Stay safe, let's keep the conversation open, and I'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.